You are listening to 100 Conferences 3TS podcast and this is Pavel from 100 Conferences. Today I am thrilled to welcome Elbrus Yilmaz from 3TS and Pete Flynn from Candela Capital. In today's session you are going to learn more about the world of LPs and the challenge of fundraising. If you are fundraising in 2020, I am happy to invite you to our conference which will be held in Dublin on 29th of April. It will be a great opportunity to network with leading LPs such as Harbour West, Hamilton Lane, EIF and many others. Elbrus, I'm passing the word to you now. Hi everybody, um, great to be back on our second episode of the Zero 0100 Conference 3TS podcast. Uh, today I have the privilege of interviewing a good friend, uh, Pete Flynn, who is the founder and CEO of Candela Capital. Uh, Pete has more than 30 years of experience in the fund management and fundraising uh, uh, industry uh, and Candela Capital was founded by him in 2003, uh, helping fund managers, small to mid-sized fund managers raise their uh, new funds. So uh, without further ado, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Hi, yes, welcome everybody and uh, I'm excited to chat with you today. Great to have you with us. Um, so today, uh, Pete, what I thought was, uh, before we begin and dive into some questions, perhaps you can give uh, some background about yourself and Candela Capital to our audience. Uh, yeah, so I, th- I think it, it, it's slightly brutally even longer than 30 years, but I started my, my career in uh, the city of London, um, uh, joining, joining Rothschild as a young man uh, just out of university in their graduate entry scheme and relatively quickly moved into the institutional asset management world where I, I sort of stayed uh, until I set my own business. Um, when I went into the alternative side, some 1999, 2000, it was pretty clear to me that most of the distribution that was done in the alternative fund side was really done on a transaction basis. And most of my professional career had distribution had been done on a relationship basis. And I always felt that there was scope for uh, a distribution partner for funds who would stay with them over a long period of time, who would try to position them uh, based on an understanding of the needs of investors rather than, just purely transactional, take them around the market. If it didn't stick, you'd moved on to the next thing. Um, and that's always been the heart of the belief in the way that Candela has um, handled all their client mandates. Uh, and the preference has always been to stay with clients for two or even three fund iterations until they are of a size to bring the distribution capability in-house. So that's always been the plan, and it's worked, it's worked pretty well, and we're still here, much larger than we were when we first started. Um, uh, but excited that the model that we set out all those years ago still seems relevant in this marketplace. Thanks for that background, Pete. And I think I have so many questions today, and uh, let's see if the time allows us. But um, being a GP myself, um, you know, I have a little bit of experience with um, dealing with LPs, working with them. And of, of course, I'm still learning, but you, you have experience in different pro- projects and different clients. Um, and I think most of our listeners are very keen to learn a, a few key things about the world of LPs. Uh, maybe a general question at the beginning, what do LPs actually look for uh, in a GP or in a fund manager? Well, I think the world of LPs is pretty difficult and more difficult than most people sort of from the outside looking in 
think it is. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, we're going out and asking LPs to invest, quite often writing a uh, seven or eight figure sum into a blind pool and, you know, a, a, a commitment into investments that they can't see um, with people that they may not know that well. So that's a tough gig. And uh, the key things that I that, that think, you know, once you understand that that's what LPs are challenged with is that they want to engage with a team that is made up of individuals of the highest reputation, ethically, professionally, and the way that they conduct themselves. And that that team invests in a process of added value, whatever that may be, you know, whatever region it may be in, whatever stage of investment it may be in, that is obvious that it can generate added value and that it is likely to be persistent. And those are the three things. Um, I don't think it's overly complicated. And that's what LPs go after. But it is, whilst it's not overcomplicated in its sort of top line structure, it is super difficult to consistently deliver, both from an LP point of view and from a GP point of view. Now, my follow-up question to that is a little bit more tactical because you... Um use a few keywords there, right? Uh, reputation, persistence, those kind of things. And knowing that the, the fund management and also LP relationship requires a lot of salesmanship in showing progress, results, um, and all of those other attributes you mentioned, how do LPs actually go find fund managers or do fund managers find LPs? Uh, I assume that it's a similar process to our investment side of things where we try to source entrepreneurs from many different resources, uh, whether it's events, uh, advisors, or other investors that we have worked with in the past. But how do LPs go about sourcing uh, when it comes to making these commitments? Well, I think you need to distinguish between the largest asset allocators, the big private equity fund, the funds, that by and large are very well resourced. And they go out and map the whole marketplace. So they will, they will go out and they will look at, they will start at early stage VC, they will go through to growth funds, they will go through to buyout funds, and they will go through the size of buyout from small to mid to large. Um, and that's purely in the private equity world. They will typically also invest in secondaries. They will also invest in infrastructure and they will also invest in private credit or private debt. But within the private equity world, they're seeking to map the whole market and understand who is doing what in which area, who has generated consistent and persistent returns in those areas, and which teams are the ones that stand out in their professionalism and, and higher standards. There's other groups of uh, investors, the pension funds and insurance companies, that whilst they're deploying very significant amounts of assets, may not be as well resourced as the professional asset allocators. And they will then tend to concentrate in certain areas where they can get most bang for their buck. So they may, they may have a very big program, want to deploy a ticket size into a fund of significant amounts. And for them, they will just cut out the smaller end of the market because they can never map it properly. They can never choose funds properly. They may have just two or three or four people within their team. And so they will concentrate on the very largest funds and 
concentrate on the best of those very largest funds. And then you will go through to other smaller organizations, either specialist investors, maybe corporates or maybe family offices, who will have to do a combination of, of, of both of those things, which is to really concentrate on the areas which they're most enthusiastic about in terms of size and in terms of stage and in terms of geography. And then within that, they will probably go out, identify their interests and probably they're more uh, recipients of inbound interest rather than going out and identifying the groups that they want to invest in. And then they will probably, if they have a relatively mature portfolio, over time, they won't make many changes. They will look to add only one or two new relationships a year, and they'll seek to get to know those relationships over time. And so they'll recognize that they can't map the whole market. They can't know the whole market. And so they will deliberately try to make mistakes of a one family office described to me as you know errors of omission rather than of commission. So they'd rather miss out on a good opportunity and make sure that the funds that they do do are very good than the other way around, which is to sort of be chasing the best idea and make a big mistake. Slightly long answer to a short question, so yeah. apologies. No, no, actually, um, uh, the follow-up to this question is actually um, uh, going to be uh, even more exciting for some of our uh, audience members. When you look at, you know, LPs um, categorizing their sourcing in, in such a fashion, uh, the world of LPs has been changing. We have even entrepreneurs now who have made successful exits becoming LPs themselves. And I think the underlying word here is relationship, right? Uh, most yeah. of these entrepreneurs or investors, they have these uh, relationships that they have developed over uh, many, many years. And then at an event in the future, it's easier for them to uh, basically commit to a person or a team that they know for the past 10, 15 years. But in your opinion today, in, in, in this day and age, if you wanted to be a first-time fund manager, um, where would you start? Where should you go for your first commitment? Uh, obviously, uh, the team has to commit as well time and money. But after finishing up the deck and getting ready to hit the road, where should they start? In their local environment, regional, public funds, which we know are uh, uh, quite prevalent component in Europe. Uh, but what would you suggest to a first-time fund manager getting ready to do, to, do, to do their fundraising right now? First-time funds are, are tough for everyone to raise. So the easiest way to do it is to have a team that was sat in a large, very successful organization, and you spin out as a team within a very specific, a specific strategy. Um, that way, the team has proof of concept of working together. You already have a track record in your area, and then we would, you would always have or also have investor relationships of people who invested in the team, in the strategy, in your previous parent company before. Now, that obviously isn't an option for certain people. But if, if it is, that's that sort of that sort of plan A. Um, if you brought if you found that there's a really great investment opportunity and you've brought your team together who hasn't worked together as a unit in this strategy before you can still raise money but essentially you only can raise money in my view from three categories of investor you have a catalyst investor you have a missionary investor 
and you have people you already know. So if we define those a bit further, the catalyst investor are those who have been set up probably by government or probably by a supranational organization to support what you're doing. And it may well be if you're investing in venture capital in Europe, a, a, an example of a catalyst investor would have been uh, uh, the EIF or potentially the EBRD. Um, so you're, you're looking at the European Investment Fund or the European Bank uh, uh, it, itself for uh, making a commitment when other, before other investors would, because you, you, you don't, as a team or a strategy, have a track record, even though that strategy may be super exciting. Uh, the, the second group is a missionary investor. So people, people who are, are, are trying to spread, spread the word um, in that. And, and they're, they're very aligned to catalyst investors, but not always identical. Um, and there may well be a missionary investor of the type that is a, you're investing in a specific tech strategy. And a missionary investor may well be other tech entrepreneurs who've made a lot of money in that area absolutely know your capabilities and what you're doing and why this strategy is so exciting. And then the third group are people who know you, people for whom the uh, principles of the First Time Fund uh, have engaged with historically and they have made money for. So there is an element of trust. And even if the strategy or the stage or the geography is slightly different, you've made money for these people before um, and you can go to them again and ask to, you know, the, this is a new strategy, but you think it's very exciting. You've made money for them before, and would they support you again? So those are the three groups. If you're outside of those groups, my working assumption is that an institutional investor looking to invest in, uh, into a, uh, a team uh, without a track record and who haven't worked before is simply going to say, look, we're interested in what you're doing and we want to follow you through fund two and fund three, but we won't, we won't be a, a, an investor in fund one um, unless you're lucky, unless you hit the right people at the right time and, the, and they write a check. But in my experience, that's incredibly rare. So first time funds have to focus really on people who they know, you know, the answer will already lie within their existing Rolodex or missionary or catalyst investors. Um, now, I, on the other hand, had a chance to you know, uh, work at technology scale-ups where we were busy with fundraising for the company and now work on the investment side for the past uh, almost decade, uh, going through a fundraising process myself. I know a little bit of uh, both sides, but when you compare um, these two paths, uh, being an entrepreneur and raising a fund is quite different than being a fund manager and raising a fund from LPs. What do you think are some of the key differences in terms of duration, process, uh, or preparedness needed uh, from the fundraising team? Well, I think the principles of raising money for a portfolio company and raising money for a, uh, a fund are, are, are very similar. You, you, you essentially have to solve the problem of the person who's going to give them money. So it's, you know, and the problem is, are they going to make their, their required return in the time scale that they believe that they're going to want to uh, uh, make it in? Um, the reason why it's possibly more complex for uh, a fundraise for a fund is as you deploy previous funds, 
the track record is spread over a long period of time. And there are, one might argue, more, you know, there are more extraneous events. Whereas if you're a portfolio company and you've had your series, your seed and maybe series A and looking to invest in series B, there are some real hard metrics that potential funders in that series B can look at, you know, the annual run rate, the, you know, the, the number of clients you've, uh, you, you've brought on board, uh, you know, the, the capability of the team to scale up and, and all of those factors. If you're a, an LP looking at a fund, um, the truth of the matter is that so many things that are uncertain that whilst you do look at the track record and you do look in detail at their investments, you know, you're not, you're, you're not selecting entrepreneurs at this pace. You're selecting people who can manage a portfolio. And that's a much softer skill. And essentially, it requires you to have the trust in those people. Now, clearly, investors in Series B are going to have the trust, are clearly going to have to trust the entrepreneur. But the number one thing uh, in my view, in the difference is is that a higher percentage of the success um, is based on a combination of trust and of potential, particularly in the early part of fund life, uh, uh, the 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 indication of returns. Once you're onto Sequoia and Kleiners, and you're on Fund Seven or Fund Eight and Fund Nine, you know everybody has sufficient data points to make superior decisions. But when you're on fund three and fund four, um, and particularly if one of those funds may not have done that well because you're investing in 2007 to nine and it was a nightmare period to be investing in, the most important thing is when you look at, when you look at the principles of the, of the GP is are these people can extract value from their portfolio. And so whilst there are, significant similarities the time scale is different uh and i think in many in many ways it it it, 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 it one might argue that it's easier to be a potential investor if you have the expertise in a series b than to be making an investment into fund three or fund four within an lp even though even though the the principles the principles apply yeah steps of the process are quite similar as you said, but the time component is quite different when you're deciding in years versus months on all I of think, those components. So, yeah. I think, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So then I think uh, when you look at decision-making processes of the LPs, which is actually one of the things uh, that I would say uh, is not standardized in my opinion, um, each category of LP act differently and work on a different path, even though they might cover the same steps. But in your experience, what you have seen uh, from um, LPs, is there a standardized industry process similar to our you know, investments, where uh, if you go to different fund managers, obviously they do due diligence, they do term phases, they do negotiations, etc. So how do LPs compare when it comes to their investment decision making and um, steps in between? I think the principles for LPs is, is fairly standard. Uh, I mean, essentially, they want to look at your track record. They want to look at uh, the GP's quality of individuals making the investments. They're wanting to look at your strategy, and they want to understand why the strategy is relevant now and, and that it will remain relevant. 
um, through the life of the investment period and beyond. Uh, so all of those things apply. But if you have enormous amounts of resources to crunch the data, um, you're going to concentrate a bit more on that than if you don't. And so organizations that, let, let's say, relatively small entrepreneurial family office will rely upon a, in, in many cases, will rely upon a sort of big fund of funds to be in there to dot every I and cross every T. And they'll re rely upon their investment intelligence to make a decision with fewer data points, but probably equally as successfully. The one big difference that you find is those organizations with a lot of confidence and investment intelligence that they've had for a long period of time. And you know, if I take some of the smartest groups in the world, um, you know, which is probably you know, the US endowments um, who've, had, who've been doing this the longest, have got the best track record, is that even if you bring a new idea to them, they absolutely understand they've got lots of metrics they know how to extract value. They know how it compares with other ideas that other people have brought to them. Um, whereas sort of more conservative organizations who may, who, who may not have seen such a range of ideas through and are less likely to be doing more interesting things, there will, there will be much, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be a constrained version of what the US endowments are doing. And as a consequence, um, th they will miss some great opportunities. And they'd rather do that with the, with, with this, with the knowledge that they're behaving conservatively, safely, prudently. Um, but actually the, the most exciting organizations to engage with are those who are the smartest, who challenge you the greatest. And even if they say no, even though it's disappointing from a fundraising point of view, it's no on the basis of a really deep knowledge of why it doesn't fit, of what needs to be done next time round. And it, intellect, as an intellectual exercise, it, it, it is much more interesting. Um, and so providing that you, you, in, you, know, you engage with all parties, uh, what you see is a very similar process, but sometimes more intelligently uh, employed by the smartest organizations versus some of, uh, some of the more box-ticking organizations. Got it. Thanks for that uh, walkthrough. Um, now, switching gears a little bit, Pete, uh, you are, you're going to be in Berlin this week. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting LP event, and um, everybody in the industry is talking about mega funds, uh, amazing returns, et cetera, and you're the subject matter expert. Could you tell us about some uh, trends that are showing up and some statistics that are changing or if there are any uh, not changing, I don't know, but what's happening in the industry overall? What are LPs talking about? Is it, you know, um, as we hear, ESG uh, type of things or are they still- Well, it, it would be much easier to answer your question at the end of next week. Returns. Yeah, sorry. It'll be much easier to okay. answer your question at the end of next week. But the things that I expect to happen, um, essentially private equity is performing very well across the piece. Um, so the big funds are performing well. The mid-sized funds are performing well. The smaller funds, the VC funds uh, are performing well. If there's some nervousness in the marketplace is that there is a great deal of money that have been raised and that people are concerned that... Uh, 
there is a fairly major public equity market reverse that will make a big difference to the uh, uh, you know all the valuations that we're that we're seeing but nevertheless private equity has really performed as an asset class for large uh, limited partners uh, over a long period of time compared to hedge funds compared to infrastructure compared to public equities and compared to bonds now admittedly public equities have done very well over a long period of time too and so um what what you're seeing still is more money coming into this market um a higher percentage of the available cake is being taken by the really big funds um and particularly the really big funds who've become platform investors um so you can go to them for big buyouts you can go to them for secondaries you can go to them to private debt you can go to them to infrastructure um you can go to them to real estate and so one of the things one of the trends that have been happening is a narrowing of the number of relationships that the big investors have been having and i completely get that i mean it's complex and if you have trust in an organization to create value then it makes sense for you to 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 concentrate the flip side as well is that there is a there is an increased understanding that many of uh if you if if you believe that the world of uh, uh the, the real value that is being driven is essentially through technology you know every company is a software company now then you want to make sure that you're investing in the part of technology that gives you the steepest value gradient and i think people are nervous that in the sort of series c and series d element of technology investing that actually it is difficult to make money significant money there um because so much money has already been deployed and that there is there's been an element and we've we've seen this through the marketplace of sort of overvalued tech companies either not driving their profit potential or having trouble with their basic economic model and people coming into those fund those portfolio companies round c and round d you know are not going to get the returns that the seed series a and series b's investors have and so you see people are coming smaller down to smaller funds and they're going earlier in the process the problem for the large asset allocators is it's very difficult for them to deploy money efficiently in that space so there's a real struggle now for them to identify how do they how do they take advantage um of the value that tech investing is driving and uh how many relationships they have for that and you also mentioned ESG the other big thing within institutional asset management in general is an absolute focus that climate change best standards of government governance uh, the best social standards are absolutely part of what all stakeholders are looking for everybody is talking about it people are implementing that in different ways so some people it's a measurement issue other people are really trying to use the assets that they they're deploying to to have not only good financial returns but very uh 
clearly identified and measured societal goals as well. And that is changing very rapidly. And in addition to that, many of those same organizations are trying, uh, are trying to align the values that they hold as a pension fund or an insurance company or as a sovereign wealth with the values that they expect their fund managers and GPs to employ. So they're increasingly looking at diversity. They're increasingly looking at the gender, racial, educational balance. And it's probably fair to say the diversity argument is further down the line than the ESG argument. But if you go out as a homogeneous management group and have paid no attention to your environmental, social or governance issues, and you're up against somebody of the same size, in the same stage, in the same geography who has, you are going to lose out for an investment. Uh, if you, you know, if you can deliver 10 times your money as a homogeneous, uh, uh, group who doesn't pay attention to that you can probably get away with it. But if you're just going to deliver even top quartile returns, you'll find the money going to other top quartile performers who, who do answer the ESG and diversity things. And so that's, that's a very big change. And interestingly, there is at, Super Return Berlin on Tuesday, there is a separate ESG day for the first time. And some of these issues are going to be discussed. And I think lots of the old dinosaurs will say, well, you know, it was good enough in my day. But, you know, I, I would caution young, you know, tech entrepreneurs all the way through to young um, GPs that if you don't get this right, you are going to find it harder to raise money than people who do get it right. Uh, and in terms of values in society, that's probably, that's probably right as well. Yeah, I mean, we have been hearing a lot of good stories in, in that um, uh, category and also some really scary ones, especially in the U.S. with some uh, public fiascos of fund managers handling um, corporate governance quite badly and there, there are some diversity issues that have been surfaced. Uh, but also I wanted to ask you, you touched upon this, um, the successes and failures of some large tech investments, whether it's uh, SoftBank or others, they are actually um, quite public. Everybody's following them and it affects uh, a lot of investors uh, on both sides of the table, whether they are GPs or LPs, in terms of decision making and paying attention to fundamentals. For example, we know that SoftBank is raising their uh, vision fund too, and I think they are raising a smaller fund and um, they are paying more attention to the fundamentals of the business uh, instead of just, uh, as, as the old saying goes, hype. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of LP sentiment towards these uh, large successes or large failures? I mean, I was looking at the uh, initial public offerings of many tech companies in the US. Most of them are actually trading below their IPO price. Uh, yeah. It just shows that you know, uh, the public markets have didn't like the companies that had a lot of uh, uh, losses and still uh, growing nicely, but uh, the fundamentals were missing. So what is your thinking on that? Do LPs really pay attention to what's happening down the road at exit? Obviously they are benefiting from it. So I, I think financial they do, but do they have cold feet going into these mega funds who have aspirations to invest in mega deals? I think it goes back to the word that you used in the question, which is just fundamentals and not get caught up in the hype. So, you know, you take, for example, WeWork, you know, it's not a complicated 
process. I mean, it's, you know, it's an exciting version of a very old model whereby you buy long and you sell short. And as long as you can sell short at a better rate than you bought long, you may can make a lot of money. The problem is that that works great in bull markets and works very, very badly in bear markets. And we've not had a bear market for some time. Um, and so it's, you know, it's just very difficult to see, you know, the emperor's, you know, is we work the emperor's new, new clothes. Um, and there's lots of, there've been lots of other organizations who've done that and have, have sort of, you know, ma managed it quite well through cycles. Um, and when they're, when they're valued so much underneath where we work was, um, it's just very difficult to see how you can justify that. And I think if you can't justify it, you know, you need to be very cautious of um, investments and or funds that specialize in those investments um, just based on the tech hype and the tech promise. Um, you know, I, I was actually sat within an internet company in 2000 and 2001 when, you know, we were told really, it doesn't matter whether we can, well, you know, you don't need to concentrate on profitability, just do clients and then we'll, you know, we can IPO on the number of on the on the number of users that you've got, and we'll solve the profitability issue later. Um, and that you know that has worked for some of the great tech companies, but I think for an awful lot it doesn't work at all. You just burn through your cash. Your runway your, your runway is utterly dependent on on future rounds of financing, and your future is never in your own hands until you can monetize it. And unless you're the absolute leader in your space, you're gone. Um, so I think it's, 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 it goes back to where you started from. You have to pay very significant attention to the fundamentals. You have to be very conscious of this sort of Empress New Clothes concept and, and, and make your own mind up and, and invest very carefully. But if, you know, when you do that, and when, and when the entrepreneurs and the portfolio companies and the founders can explain their value added and how they're going to have a pathway to profitability um, within the period of time that you need, um, that, you know, there is still very, very significant returns to be had by investors across all stages. And, you know, and as we know, you know, if, 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 uh, you're not a leading, if you're not employing leading tech within your business, somebody else is and you're, you're going to be the victim of disruption. So we, we, we know still that this whole process has is, is got, is got, you know, a long way to run. But you have to concentrate on fundamentals and not be swept up by the crowd. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So we, we are, you know, um, getting close to our uh, session's end, but maybe last few questions for you, Pete. Um, when you look at, you know, the resources out there for fund managers, uh, whether to read, to follow or to watch, um, to understand the LP's psyche, their investment uh, decision-making process, way of thinking, do you have any suggestions or tips uh, for our uh, listeners um, uh, what, what blogs, newsletters or reports to follow and read and what, what books or goodreads you have uh, shared in the past with your clients? Oh, in, ter in terms of sources to try and navigate through, I mean, you know, I, it, 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 I, I find this area, having, having been at it for 30 odd years, still incredibly difficult. And I actually find the more I go out and talk to investors, the more I go out and spend time with people on the road, the better informed I am. 
and in fact the truth is is that um why would you put massive value you know real secret source value uh, in the public domain, you wouldn't, you know, if you, if you think you have a superior way of looking at a problem or a superior way of executing, you keep it to yourself. And the only way you're willing to share it is if you're in the company of other people who are willing to share what they're doing. And, and that goes back to, you know, I don't think there's a shortcut, you know, and, you know, I'd love to reduce the carbon footprint of my travel. But actually, when you're in this space, nothing, nothing replaces meeting people face to face and sharing what you think are the key issues um, and getting their views. And over a period of time, you have a view as to which of the voices you want to listen to more, which of the uh, uh, strategies you think are going to be more persistent. Um, and... Uh, you've just got to get out and and so the combination of concentrate on the fundamentals and build relationships and out of that it's my view you you can start to make you can start to make superior uh, analyses and and superior decisions um others others think you you there are shortcuts and you can get other but i you know my experience is actually just get out there and talk to people and uh, be generous with your time and with what you think, and in that way you can uh, uh, you can you can sow what you reap, and people will trust you and and and, and share their views with you. Um, and you know, it's the other thing as well is is concentrate on dealing with the best people, because the best people, however they do it, um, uh, the the best people a tend to be relatively straightforward and relatively open about what they do because they know it's very difficult to replicate uh and b you you have limited amount of time so so concentrate concentrate on the fundamentals relationships and the best people and that's probably the best way to move forward but in the full knowledge that there are 101 different ways to skin the cat as uh, as my mother used to say and um uh if you believe you have a source of data that other people aren't using that that, that gives you value then good luck to you yeah no it's very much a people's business uh many investors many gps talk about you know data-based or thesis-based investments where they analyze the market looking at some trends etc probably lps some lps probably do the same uh, but I like the fact that you're conscious about carbon footprint, and I think, unfortunately, coronavirus is helping with that. So less and less people are traveling these days. But anyway, it's very much a business uh, that depends on people, and I agree with you. Nothing beats um, getting some uh, uh, feedback on your deck uh, in person, uh, either it's a GP or an LP or entrepreneur. Just being in person with them helps a lot, and obviously, you need to manage your time. All right, talking about uh, sports analogies. I know you're a big cycling fan, Pete. Uh, we're not going to hide that. And I, I also, when I'm working with portfolio companies, CEOs, entrepreneurs, we always resort to some sports discussion uh, because many of the things that we do is either a team sports in some of the days and some other days you're climbing a mountain on your own. Um, but I have to ask you this. What is your favorite uh, tour? Is it Tour de France, Giro, or Paris-Roubaix? Well, <laughs> One of the most fantastic things about cycling is that the very, very ordinary cyclist, someone like me, uh, can actually experience and rub shoulders with, with their heroes. So I can, I can ride a, a Tour de France stage. 
Uh, I can ride a Giro stage and I can ride Paris-Roubaix the day before. Uh, the pros do it on pretty much the same route. Um, uh, and so I won't answer it from a pro point of view, but from a participant's point of view. And you know, you know, the, the Dolomites is stunning. The High Alps is just, you know, a wonderful place to be cycling. Uh, but the... <laughs> Uh, Paris-Roubaix um, will redefine your view of what you can do on a bicycle. <laughs> it, it's, it's sort of insane. Um, uh, but if you said, you know, I could only spend, I could only spend one more day um, uh, uh, riding my bicycle in the high mountains, I would probably take myself off to the Dolomites. Uh, but but the, if you said, what was the most memorable day you spent on the bike? It was, it was <laughs> rattling my teeth and hands doing, doing Paris-Roubaix, though I probably wouldn't choose to go and do it that often too often <laughs> uh, well i mean i've never been actually uh, to that course but i watched on tv a few times and um, quite challenging by the looks of it but oh, Rube's, think... Rube's insane Rube's insane yeah, you is. cannot be, you cannot believe that the bike and you can cope with it um, yeah. until you've until you've done it and then it then it redefines your view of what a bicycle is capable of yeah which one do you think you know, sounds more like, or feels more like fundraising process for a GP. Well, they, I mean, I mean, you know, everyone's always said that, you know, the Grand Tour, um, it, it was, it requires a superhuman, a superhuman effort. And I remember fundraising from a, a female GP partner. And she said, you know, it's just like pregnancy. It takes forever. It's really difficult. It's painful <laughs> process the whole time. And then you forget about how bad it was <laughs> and do it again three, four years later. And it's just as bad. And so, um, I, I always like that. And even though I'm not going to experience the, the joys and the difficulties of pregnancy, I think that's a pretty good analogy for fundraising. Great. All right, Pete. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I think... You didn't promise, but we'll accept it as a promise that we connect again in the coming weeks or months to recap after these, uh, some of these events in the industry to see how 2020 shapes up in the world of LPs. And uh, we're looking forward to meeting in person uh, in, the, in the coming days. Great, Elbrus. Great to chat with you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Pete, for that wonderful session. Um, today we had Pete Flynn from Candela Capital. We talked about the world of LPs and challenges of fundraising. Uh, looks like the industry is there to stay. Uh, that's good news for uh, everybody, including myself. Uh, but Pete highlighted some of the critical areas where um, fundraising GPs should um, pay attention to. And these are fundamentals, building relationships in person, and gaining trust uh, with, uh, with your counterparts early on, and then maintaining a good track record and a good team uh, that can actually excel in different cycles of the economy whether it's down or up so those are the uh, key highlights from the session with pete um, looking forward to our next session in a few weeks and we'll be um, uh, publishing the podcast uh, with pete soon uh, with a blog post thank you so much